I invite you to please stand as we read the Word of God together this morning. Open your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 10. And we are going to begin reading in verse 16 and read throughout the rest of the chapter. Again, Matthew 10, beginning in verse 16. This is Jesus calling his disciples and sending them out. And he is essentially warning them what will await them as they go out and preach the gospel. Matthew 10:16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward, and he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Pray with me. Our God and Father, it is such an immense privilege to be able to commune with you in this moment to worship you, to adore you, to stand in humility before you. 
And we recognize that there was a time in our life when you were not our father and that we were not your children, that we were your enemies and you were our hostile judge. And it is only because of Christ, his great work of redemption, his work of reconciliation, that we are accepted by you, that we know you, that we have access into your presence through the blood of Christ. And Father, we understand, as we have just read in Matthew 10, that part of your purpose for calling us to yourself, to belong to you, is that we in this world would advance the gospel. That we would be about making disciples of all the nations. And we also understand, O oh God, that when we are faithful in this endeavor, that we will experience severe opposition. And that opposition can even come from within our own household. Father, we thank you that Christ is our victorious captain that he has conquered our ancient foe, the devil, and his demons. And as we live in this world and are engaged in spiritual combat with Satan and his demons, we know that it is only in the strength of Christ that we can overcome the onslaught of Satan. And we thank you for how your word instructs us in this way. And I pray, O oh God, as we turn our attention once again to spiritual warfare this morning, that you would further enhance our understanding of the battle that we are in, that we would not be ignorant of the schemes of Satan, that we would be wise, and that we would live in the strength of Christ. We thank you that ultimately Satan is defeated, and that one day, O oh Lord Jesus, you will cast him into the lake of fire where he will burn with torment forever and ever. We thank you for your word to us that we are not to fear man who can kill the body and no more, but rather we are to fear you, O God, the only almighty, omnipotent being in the universe. May you be with us, O oh God. Bring us comfort, bring us help, bring us strength by the power of your Spirit through the Word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please take your Bibles once again and open to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, and verse 10. The title of this morning's message is The Christian Spiritual Warfare, Part 4, A Call to Arms. And I want to read the first portion of this part of Ephesians to you. Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. In preparation for this message, I thought of the following question. Does everyone have an enemy? Does everyone in this world have an enemy? In thinking about this question, I did an internet search, and here are some of the answers that I found. One person said, to my knowledge, no real enemies. 
Another person said, no enemies to my knowledge here. Since relatively few of us are engaged in life or death competitions with other people, there is really no reason for us to have enemies. Someone else said, I don't have enemies because I avoid conflict. Someone else said, no, I don't have any that I know of. I think I get along well with everyone. Another said, I don't have anyone I would classify as an enemy, but there are people who somehow fail to appreciate the fullness of who I am. <laughs> and finally, someone said, not any more. That person might need to be investigated, <laughs> Brother Rick. Well, how does the Bible answer this question? Does everyone have an enemy? According to the Bible, the answer is yes. Everyone in this world, without exception, has an enemy, whether you are a Christian or whether you are not a Christian. If someone is not a Christian, listen very carefully, that person's enemy is God. It is God. Our sin against God is an act of rebellion against His authority and against His goodness. And whether a person realizes it or not, our sin arouses the wrath of God against us. And it is considered by God to be an act of war. And therefore, the Bible clearly and emphatically affirms that all sinners are the enemies of God and are at enmity with God. But God, in His mercy and in His goodness, offers reconciliation to sinners one way, and that is through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible promises, beloved, that if any sinner, even the worst of sinners, will turn from his or her sin and place his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the only one who can save from sin and from the wrath of God, then God at that moment will accept you, he will forgive you of all of your sins, and he will no longer consider you to be his enemy. Rather, he will consider you to be his child and his friend. And this is the best news that there is in the world. But what is important for the Christian to understand is that while it is true that God is no longer the enemy, that does not mean that we no longer have an enemy, because we do. The issue is who is the enemy of the Christian. And the Bible tells us that the enemy of the Christian, the foe of the Christian, the ancient foe, is the devil and his host of demons. So let's ask the question once again, does everyone have an enemy? The answer is yes. There needs to be no confusion here. Either God is your enemy or the devil is your enemy. It is either or. It is not confused at all in the mind of God. If you are not a Christian, the devil is your father and God is your enemy. But if you are a Christian, then God is your father and the devil is your enemy. And I would say emphatically far better to have the devil as your enemy than to have God as your enemy. And beloved, this brings us to Ephesians 6 where we are learning that as Christians not only is the devil and his host of demons engaged against us, but we are learning how to fight in the spiritual warfare. We are learning how to properly engage in spiritual warfare against the devil and against his host of demons. Now, by way of review, I have mentioned to you before that in this passage in Ephesians 6, there are three main parts. In verses 10 through 13, we have the believer's warfare. In 14 through 17, we have the believer's armor. And then in 18 through 20, we have the believer's lifeline. And last time we began to look at this first main point, the believer's warfare. And in this point, Paul is giving to us a call to arms. And under this main point, we have two subpoints, which again are listed for you on your sermon notes page. The first of which is letter A, the strength for our warfare in verses 10 through 11a. 
And as we noted last time, our spiritual enemy is so formidable and the battle that we are in is so fierce that we could never possibly be successful in our own strength. Therefore, Paul, as he gives us this call to arms, he begins by commanding us to engage in spiritual warfare, not in our own strength, but in the unsurpassing, unrivaled power of Christ, whose power far exceeds that of the devil and whose power is more than sufficient for us in our spiritual fight. And the way that we are to appropriate the power of Christ is by putting on the full armor of God. The second subpoint is letter B, the nature of our warfare. And here we are learning about the goal of our warfare. For what purpose are we to be strengthened with the power of Christ by putting on the full armor of God? What is the goal? So that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. This phrase gives us tremendous insight into the nature of our spiritual warfare. And for now, we are focusing on just one part of the phrase of the verse, the schemes of the devil. As our avowed enemy, the devil employs repeated and varied attacks against the people of Christ. And the three most common strategies that he uses are, number one, he tempts us to sin. Number two, he intimidates us through persecution. And number three, he attacks the word of God. Last time we looked at the first one, he tempts us to sin. And this morning we are going to look at the second strategy of Satan. He intimidates us through persecution. And beloved, this is a very sobering truth for us to consider. In John 17... One of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. It is the eve of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And on that occasion, Jesus prays for his apostles in verses 6 through 19. And in this prayer for the apostles, he mentions something about them and their relationship to the world in verse 14. He says, I have given them, that is the apostles, your word, and the world has hated them. Because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. The Lord Jesus says in no uncertain terms that the world hates the apostles. But why? Why does the world hate these men? What does Jesus say? Because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. In other words, when you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, you no longer belong to the world. And when you no longer belong to the world but belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, mark it, the world is going to hate you. The world is not going to applaud you. The world is not going to celebrate you. The world is not going to pat you on the back. It will hate you if you belong to Christ. As I read earlier in Matthew 10... What did Jesus tell these men? You will be hated by all because of my name. You will be hated by all because of my name. Listen, what I have said just to this point utterly destroys any kind of notion of the prosperity gospel. Oftentimes for the Christian, life does not become better, it becomes harder. Because you now live in a world that is opposed to you because it is opposed to Christ. In fact, the deepest hatred that exists in the world is hatred for Jesus Christ and for those who represent him, namely the church. Let me say that again. The deepest hatred that exists in the world is a hatred for Jesus Christ and for those who represent him, namely the church. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 1.24. It is a very interesting, profound statement. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, 
And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church. Notice the rest. In filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That is a strange statement by Paul. He says that in his suffering for the church, he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What is he talking about? What Paul is saying is that the world hated Christ so much that it murdered him. But once the world murdered the Lord Jesus Christ, its hatred for Christ did not go away. And now that Christ has risen and ascended back into heaven, the hatred that the world has for the Lord Jesus Christ is now pointed directly at whom? Those who belong to Christ. And that's what Paul means when he says that I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. The world has not stopped wanting to afflict Christ, to attack Christ. But since he's not here the world attacks us, the people who belong to Christ. Listen to one of the promises of the Bible, 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be, what is it? Persecuted. That is a promise. Indeed, all, no exceptions, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, you can avoid persecution by being an anonymous Christian, by never opening your mouth about the Lord Jesus Christ, by sort of hiding your true relationship with Christ. But if you're going to be faithful, if you're going to be godly in Christ, you will be persecuted. That is a promise. So why is it then that the world hates those who belong to Jesus Christ and to those who belong to him? Why does it hate Christ? Why does it persecute Christ and us? What is the answer according to the Bible? The answer in large measure is this. It is due to the fact that the devil is the ruler of this world. He is the prince of the power of the air. He is the God of this age. He is the one who controls the evil world system that we live in that is opposed to God. And if you are a Christian, one of the attacks of Satan, one of the methods of attack of the devil that he will use against you, listen, is persecution. It is persecution. And beloved, the devil's persecution against us is nothing short of vicious and terrifying. Think back, I mentioned a minute ago the apostles. Do you realize that of the apostles, the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, that only one of them died of natural causes? Only one. Judas Iscariot, as you well know, committed suicide. John died of natural causes, the only one of the twelve. James, the son of Zebedee and brother of John, was beheaded by Herod Antipas. Peter and his brother Andrew, along with James the Less and Simon the Zealot, they were crucified. Philip, Thomas, Matthew, and Jude were all martyred. Bartholomew, listen to this, he was flayed to death. Violent. It's graphic. His skin was literally removed from his body. That is how he died. And in addition to the twelve, don't forget about the Apostle Paul who was beheaded. So out of those 13 men that I just mentioned to you, 11 of them, beloved, 11 of them were martyrs. Crucified, flayed, Beheaded? That is extremely sobering. Eleven of these men sealed their faith and their love for the Lord Jesus Christ with their own blood. They understood that Christ died for them and they were willing to die for Christ. 
What a profound testimony these men made of the Lord Jesus Christ. And beloved, what you need to understand about the history of the early church is that it was decidedly marked by persecution. Decidedly marked by persecution. The first persecution against the church was by the Jews, unbelieving apostate Jews. It was the Jews who murdered Jesus. It was the Jews who martyred Stephen, the first martyr in the history of the church. And it was the Jews, listen, who were responsible for the martyrdom of the Apostle James. But then following the Jewish persecution of the church, the church began to be persecuted by the Romans, from both Roman society in general and then from the Roman government. In fact, from the years A.D. 64 to 311, there were ten waves of Roman persecution against the church beginning with Emperor Nero in A.D. 64. Listen to Tacitus, the Roman historian, writing about this horrific persecution by Nero of the church. Before killing the Christians, Nero used them to amuse the people. It was entertainment for Emperor Nero. Some were dressed in furs to be killed by dogs. Others were crucified. Still others were set on fire early in the night so that they might illumine it. It was clear that they were not being destroyed for the common good, but rather to satisfy the cruelty of one person. That's the years A.D. 64 to 68. That is the time when the apostles Peter and Paul were martyred under Emperor Nero. After Nero's death, other Roman emperors would continue the persecution against the church, such as Emperor Domitian, who treated Christianity as a crime against the state, and he condemned many Christians to death. But it was Emperor Diocletian, A.D. 303 to 311, who was the last and the greatest persecutor against the church during the time of the Roman Empire. But in AD 311, Emperor Galerius issued what is called the Edict of Toleration, which provided for a limited toleration of Christianity. And then two years later, in AD 313, Roman Emperor Constantine formally ended the Roman persecution against the church with the famous Edict of Milan. A.D. 313. The Edict of Milan not only formally ended the persecution by the Roman state against the church, it led to the marriage between the church and the state, which in many ways was far worse than the persecution the church suffered. So the promise that Paul makes to Timothy that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted certainly proved true in the first 250 years of church history. But listen very carefully. The Edict of Milan did not stop the world's persecution of the church. It did not stop it. And I say that because there is a tendency for modern Christians like us who live in the western part of the world like us to think that persecution against the church is a thing of the past. But nothing could be further from the truth. The same Satan-controlled evil world system that persecuted the early church through the Jews and through the Romans is still persecuting the church up to this very moment without stop, without fail, without any ceasing. In fact, I want to give you some very sobering statistics. It is estimated that throughout the entire history of the church, more than 70 million Christians have been martyred. Try to wrap your mind around that. More than 70 million Christians have done what the apostles did, sealed their faith 
in Christ with their own blood. And now listen to this. The majority of the more than 70 million Christians who have been martyred have been martyred in modern history. Not ancient Roman history, but modern history. According to the World Christian Encyclopedia, in the 20th century alone, there were 45,400,000 Christians who were martyred. The 20th century, beloved. Not the 1st century, the 2nd century, the 3rd century, the early period of the Roman rule, but modern history, the 20th century. So according to these statistics, more than half of all Christians who have been martyred were martyred between the years 1900 to 1999 in modern history. Therefore, not only is persecution against the church not a thing of the past, in the last 100 years or so, there has been an explosion of persecution against the church. In fact, we could call the 20th century the century of the Christian martyr. 45 million plus. There are more Christians dying in modern history than in any other period of history. According to one source, from the middle of 2008 until the middle of 2009, a one-year period of time, there were an estimated 176,000 Christians who were martyred in one year, between 2008-2009. That's 482 martyrs per day. That's one martyr every three minutes. Every three minutes, somewhere around the world, according to these statistics, a Christian is dying for the Lord Jesus Christ. That means during the course of time that we are engaged in our public worship, an estimated 25 Christians around the world will be martyred. That is profound. That is sobering. Now, where does all of this persecution come from? It doesn't only come from Nero and Diocletian. It doesn't only come from the communist government of China and the like. In large part, beloved, this is one of the schemes of the devil. This is one of the schemes of the devil. One of the major strategies of the devil is to intimidate God's people through persecution, and it is a very effective strategy. Now I want to demonstrate to you from the Bible the devil's involvement in persecution against the church. And let's begin in Luke 22. Luke 22. We've looked at this verse a couple of times already in this study, but it is important for us to turn back to it again this morning. Luke 22 and verse 31, Jesus is in a conversation with Simon and with the other apostles with Simon Peter, and he says in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Now, what does it mean to sift like wheat? I mean, this is expressing the desire, the wish of Satan. This is what he wants to do to Peter and the other apostles. Well, what it means, according to verse 32, is he wants to destroy their faith. Look at what Jesus says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That indicates to us what it means when Jesus says in verse 31 that the devil wants to sift you like wheat. He wants, to, he wants to separate you from your faith. He wants to destroy your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. How is he going to do this? Through one of his greatest strategies that he has, persecution. According to Jesus, Satan was going to have some measure of success because he predicted that Peter was going to fall. Note verse 32, But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. What does that imply? Peter is going to fall. His faith is not going to be utterly destroyed by Satan, but he is going to experience a fall. Peter 
obviously denies it. Look at verse 33. But he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. How wonderful of Peter to say that. This isn't going to happen. I'm willing to die for you. I'm ready to die for you. I'm willing to go to prison for you. Verse 34, and he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times that you even know me. And that is exactly what happened. Peter did not have the courage and the strength to resist the persecution of the devil. In fact, he would do exactly what Jesus said. Out of fear of man, he denied that he even knew the Lord. And here is the leader of the twelve. Now denying the Lord Jesus Christ. And the other apostles, out of that same fear of man, that same fear of persecution, they all run away from Christ following his arrest. And after the crucifixion of Jesus, what were the apostles doing? Were they standing strong on the street corners? Were they being bold and courageous? Were they going to prison and dying for the Lord? No, they were locked up in a room, the Bible says, for fear of the Jews. They're afraid. Utterly afraid, intimidated by the fear of persecution. And beloved, all of this was the scheme of the devil. It was his attempt to sift them like wheat, to destroy their faith, by intimidating them with the fear of persecution. And again, listen, it proved to be a very effective tactic. Now turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 2 because there's another statement Paul makes that I believe is of the same line that we're talking about here. 1 Thessalonians 2, 17. Paul says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time, for a short while in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. Paul had been in Thessalonica. He wanted to go back to Thessalonica. He wanted to see them face to face. And he says in verse 18, For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. Now he doesn't explain exactly how Satan hindered Paul and his associates. But if you read in the book of Acts in chapter 17 as Paul visits Thessalonica, you'll notice that he is run out of town because of persecution. And that probably is the same reason here that he is not able to go back to Thessalonica. And again, you'll note that Satan is behind it. This is his strategy. This is his scheme to use persecution. And then turn with me to Revelation 2. Revelation chapter 2. As Jesus is addressing the seven churches of Asia Minor, in Revelation 2, beginning in verse 8, he addresses the church at Smyrna. And I want you to notice what he says to this church. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last who was dead and who has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now note verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. What a profound statement. The devil is about to cast some of you into prison. How is he going to do that? He isn't just going to literally pick them up and throw them into a jail. He is going to do this through the unbelieving Jews that Jesus mentions, the synagogue of Satan. These are apostate Jews, unbelieving Jews who hate Christ, who hate the church, and they will be Satan's tool of persecution. And later on in the book of Revelation, we learn that in the future tribulation period, Satan is going to empower the Antichrist to persecute God's people in an unprecedented way. Revelation 13, 7, it was also given to him, that is the Antichrist, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And so this future world ruler is going to make war with Christ and with those who belong to God in this world. And so, beloved, do not be ignorant of Satan's schemes to intimidate you with persecution. 
Now, with this in mind, let me ask you some questions. And let's be honest as we think about these questions. What is one of the greatest fears that Christians have when living the Christian life? What is it? Probably at the top of the list, evangelism. Evangelism. When we think about evangelism, it strikes fear in the heart. And what is it about evangelism that makes us tend to be fearful? It's being persecuted on one level or another. And when we fail to evangelize out of fear of persecution, what has happened? We have just been duped by the scheme of the devil. When we fail to evangelize out of fear of persecution, we have just fallen for one of the schemes of the devil who uses, again, the fear of persecution to attack us. It's one of his most effective strategies. His goal is to hinder the advancement of the gospel. And this is certainly one way to do it. And as we think about the schemes of the devil, we need to understand that whatever scheme the devil uses, and, and they are myriad, that they are all based upon lies. The devil is a liar, and he is the father of lies, and therefore everything that he does, everything that he says, all of his schemes that he employs, they are based upon lies. So when it comes to tempting us to sin, as we looked at last week, the lie of the devil is that what is offered to us in the temptation is somehow good for us when in fact it is not good for us. The classic example of that is when the devil tempted Eve. He told her that if she were to eat of the forbidden tree, that what would it do for her? What advantage would it give to her that she would be like God, knowing good from evil? That was a lie. So in every temptation that the devil offers, it is based upon a lie. And it is also true when it comes to the fear of persecution. The fear that we face, it is a real fear. There is something to be feared there, but it ultimately is based upon a lie. The devil's lie is that it is better to have people like you than to offend them with the gospel. The devil's lie is that it is better to be a peacemaker than to cause a stir, which you know will happen if you share the gospel with your family at the family reunion. The devil's lie is that earthly comfort is more important than suffering, and earthly comfort is more important than the souls of lost people. I could go on and on with the devil's lies, so do not be ignorant of Satan's devices, of his lies, of his use, of the fear of persecution. Do not be ignorant of his strategy. And beloved, as we go back to Ephesians 6 and verse 10, this is why Paul begins the way that he does, by saying, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Because in your own strength, you are not strong enough to overcome the fear of persecution. You're just not. And neither am I. In our own strength, we would be silent about the Lord. In our own strength, we would deny the Lord. In our own strength, we would defect from the Lord. We would run away from the Lord. We would abandon the Lord in the face of persecution. In our own strength, we would completely capitulate to the fear of man. We would do this. If it were not for the strength of Christ, we would all become apostates out of the fear of man. And that, that is, again, why it is so vital to understand Paul's command at the very outset of spiritual warfare, be strong, not in your own strength, but in the Lord and in the strength of his might, his unrivaled power, his unsurpassing power is the only power that you can use 
to fight against the devil and his demons and be successful. And so let me ask you this question. What is the very worst thing the devil can do to you? Kill you. That's it. That's it. He can kill your body, but he can't kill your soul. And the body is temporal anyway. One day your body will die anyway, but your soul is everlasting. It endures forever. It is eternal. The devil does not have the power to destroy your saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We looked at that in Luke 22. He does not have the power to destroy our faith. He did not have the power to destroy the faith of Job. He doesn't have the power to do that with the apostles, nor any other true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The devil also does not have the power to take away your salvation. He doesn't have that kind of power. But under God, he does have the power to persecute us through the means of ungodly people. And he does have the power even to use them to kill your body. As has happened more than 70 million times in 2,000 years. But in light of this, as we think about Matthew 10, which I read earlier, what did Jesus say about the fear of persecution? He said, do not fear three times. Do not fear, do not fear, do not fear, do not be anxious. He said, do not deny me before men. When you come to that point in your life, when your life is being threatened and somebody is going to take your life with utter cruelty and violence, do not deny me before men. In the same sermon, he says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. If you think that I came to bring peace on earth, you are greatly disillusioned. I did not come to bring peace on earth, but a sword. And that sword will find its way oftentimes within your own family. If you are a Christian and the rest of your family are not Christians, there will not be peace. There will be a sword. And your own family may persecute you. I love what John Piper said. Jesus died in our place so that we might escape the wrath of God, not the wrath of man. And I would add to that, and not the wrath of the devil. The wrath of God has been turned away from us and turned to Christ, and we are therefore reconciled with God. But now in this world, as the children of God, we suffer the wrath of man, and we suffer the wrath of the devil. Now let's take this a step further. God has a purpose in all things, including allowing persecution and even martyrdom. And what is God's purpose? It is to advance the gospel. One of God's ways of advancing the gospel is through the suffering of God's people. Turn with me for a moment to Acts 8 and see the first example of this in the book of Acts. Acts 8, beginning in verse 1. Here we are introduced to a man named Saul in verse 1. We know him as the Apostle Paul, but at this point he was not that. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. That is the death of Stephen. Stephen was just stoned at the end of chapter 7. And on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The apostles stay there in Jerusalem. Verse 2, some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. And so here is Saul. He is the poster boy of Judaism. He is the leading enemy of the church in terms of persecuting the church. It is an awful scene. And yet, what does God do with this? How does God use this terrible persecution by the Jews to the church. Verse 4, therefore those who had been scattered went about, what did they do? Hiding. They went about hiding. They didn't want to go through that again. They, they loved their earthly comfort way too much to suffer that again. 
No, therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. So what does the persecution do? It drives the church out of Jerusalem into all of these other regions. And what do the Christians then in turn do? They preach the gospel. A specific example of that is in verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. So there is Satan behind the persecution. God then takes the persecution and uses it to advance the gospel for his glory. That is another example of how God is sovereign over Satan and how he even uses the schemes of Satan to advance his work on the earth through the spread of the gospel. There's a quote by Tertullian from the early church, an early church father. He said this, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You martyr Christians, their blood is spilled, and what does it do? It's like seed in the soil that just produces fruit. You persecute the church, and basically what you're doing is you're advancing the gospel. What a profound statement. So, beloved, please know the gospel is advanced through suffering. It is advanced through suffering. It is gloriously advanced through suffering. And in addition to Acts 8, I believe the greatest example of how God uses persecution to serve his own purposes in advancing the gospel is when Paul suffered his first Roman imprisonment. In Acts 21, Paul goes to Jerusalem. He is in the temple. He is attacked by a Jewish mob. He is then arrested. He is then taken away from Jerusalem. He is eventually sent to the city of Rome to await trial before Caesar. In Rome, he is placed under house arrest for two years where he is literally chained to a soldier 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that is where he is as he writes the book of Ephesians, literally chained to a soldier 24 hours a day, seven days a week for two years. That is his situation. And at first glance, it would appear that the persecution brought about by Satan in Jerusalem by those unbelieving Jews, that it had stopped Paul's ministry. That's what it might look like on the surface. But when Paul wrote his letter to the Philippians from that Roman imprisonment, I want you to notice what Paul says about his circumstances. Philippians 1 and verse 12. They're concerned about Paul. What is his condition? What is the status of his ministry? They're deeply burdened by Paul's situation. And Paul says, amazingly in verse 12, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Bless God for that. I love Philippians 1. I love what Paul says here. I've been arrested unjustly. I have been attacked. I have had plots against my life. I have been taken to Rome, arrested, chained to a soldier 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And you know what this is all about? It's not about my earthly comfort. It's not about me having a good life. It's not about me having worldly success. It's all about the advancement, the progress of the gospel. And bless God, He has used my circumstances to effect that, not to hinder it. Well, how in the world could Paul say the gospel is advancing as he's in chains? He's not traveling around the Roman Empire like he did in the book of Acts. He's now confined. So what does he say in verse 13? Here's how the gospel has made progress and advanced in his imprisonment. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. Guess what? All of those involved in this prison system know the gospel. Because Paul is an evangelist as he is a prisoner. 
Every soldier that he's chained to hears the gospel. Every person that crosses his path hears the gospel. And over and over and over, Paul is preaching the gospel in that place, listen, where if Paul had not been imprisoned, the gospel would not have penetrated. And so we're before Paul is off to Ephesus, he's off to Corinth, he's off to Philippi, all of these cities, Thessalonica, preaching the gospel. Now here he is in Roman confinement, preaching the gospel to all of those who made up the prison system. Verse 14, And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without what? Without fear, the same thing we're talking about now. Listen, look at Paul over there. Look at what that man has endured. Look at what that man has suffered. Watch him take his shirt off and look at the scars that ravage his body. And look at him not capitulating to the fear of man and to persecution. And as I see him, God uses that to put strength into my bones. And so in that way, God is using these circumstances to advance the gospel. Not just through Paul, but in the lives of all of these other people who see Paul. What a humble, profound testimony this is. Beloved, as Christians, we must not cherish our earthly comfort, our earthly safety more than we cherish Christ and his purposes for us in this world, which do involve persecution. Paul lived for Christ and to make him known no matter what the consequences would be. And he states this in Philippians 1, 19, or 1, 20 and 21. According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness... Notice that with all boldness, with all courage, with the strength of Christ, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Whether I live or die, the only thing that matters to me is the magnification of Christ, the exaltation of Christ. Why is that, Paul? Verse 21, for to me, to live is money, to live is comfort, to live is fame, to live is popularity. No, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If they kill me, bless God, I go to heaven, and I get to be with Christ. So, beloved, Jesus is worth suffering for. He is worth dying for. As millions of Christians have already done, and many more will do in the future. Well, I want to conclude with a very powerful quote from Steve Lawson. It's taken from a sermon, I believe it is entitled, It Will Cost You Everything. And he's asking the question, what does it cost to become a disciple of Christ? The answer is, it will cost you everything. And here's what he says. You need to weigh in on the cost factor and count the cost of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. It will cost you popularity. It will cost you promotion, perhaps, at times. It will cost you an easy life. You will have to discipline yourself. You will have to buffet your body. You will have to say no to temptation. You will have to say no to this world. You will have to break with the crowd. You will have to be willing to stand alone for Christ. You will have to be willing to walk to the beat of a different drummer And to step out of the crowd even if no one follows after Jesus Christ. You would be willing to stand if you were the only person in the world for Jesus Christ. That's the cost factor. You would have to be willing to suffer persecution for Christ. And let me tell you, it will come. It might even cost you your life. End quote. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of the gospel, for the strength of Christ, and for your armor, which are more than able to equip us in our spiritual fight. 
Father, we thank you for the example of Paul and the other apostles who suffered for Christ with their blood. And we understand as we live in this world that one of the devil's schemes is to intimidate us with the fear of persecution. And Father, I pray that you would convict us where there is fear in us, the fear of man, and that you would replace that with the fear of you and with a concern for the lost condition of men. And may you equip us with your strength so that as we live in this world, we will not fear men, that we will not fear persecution, that we will not fear suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a privilege to suffer for Christ. Even Jesus said, blessed are you when you suffer, when you are reviled, when men persecute you and attack you. It is a blessing to be so identified with Christ that the world directs its hatred for Christ against us. May we be faithful even unto death, as you said to the church at Smyrna, and that in turn we will receive the crown of life. Father, we do not want to be ignorant of his schemes, the schemes of the devil. We do not want to live victims duped by his subtle attacks and even not so subtle attacks. May you strengthen us in this fight. May we be faithful soldiers of Christ as long as we live in this world until we take our final breath. And we pray this in the name and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.